0: Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we love you and we praise you for the gospel of your son by which we have been redeemed and reconciled to you. Father, we want to hear from you. We want you to give us the very words of life, so we ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants here. Father, we confess that our hearts can be very cold and complacent and unmoved even by the proclamation of uh, glorious things. And so we pray that you would open our hearts and that you would grant to us humility, that the Holy Spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted. And so we pray that none of us would walk out of this room unaffected by your word. Father, we pray for those among us who do not yet know you, pray that you would save them, pray that you would use this sermon this morning as a means to bring them to your Son. And we ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please take out got a copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 6. Sunday mornings here at First Baptist, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. And last Sunday, you'll remember we went through the list of the 12 disciples from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Well, this week I want to look at those same verses again, but focus on one disciple in particular, uh, the one listed last, in every list of these 12 disciples, ours included. And that would be Judas Iscariot. Let me start by reading our passage again. This is Luke 6, verses 12 through 16. I hear the word of the Lord. In These days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Judas Iscariot, now that name uh, in and of itself is quite unremarkable. Judas was a a pretty common name back then, as evidenced by the fact that there was another disciple named Judas, right? Judas, the son of James. Uh, it is the Greek form of the Hebrew Judah, uh, and so it just means praise or uh, Jehovah leads. Uh, and Iscariot, uh, we're not quite sure what that means. It probably just means man of Kerioth, uh, referring to his hometown of Kerioth in. Southern Judea. Uh, Others have suggested, well, maybe it comes from uh, the Latin word for dagger, and so maybe Judas is part of this revolutionary group known for assassinating Romans, not unlike the zealots that we talked about last week. Or maybe it comes from an Aramaic term meaning false one. Uh, But the fact that he's called the son of Simon Iscariot in the Gospel of John, as in his father was also an Iscariot. Uh, makes us think that maybe the geographical descriptor is most likely. All that to say, uh, that name, Judas Iscariot, uh, it's just distinguishing this Judas as being from Kerioth, as opposed to the dozens of other Judases that are running around back then. Uh, It was a rather unremarkable name. And again, considering that the name means praise or Jehovah leads, it's a pretty nice name. But to us, well, the name's taken on a meaning of its own. Like, regardless of how long you've been going to church and uh, how long you've been reading and studying the Bible, you're probably familiar with that name, Judas, because it's synonymous with treachery and backstabbing. Every famous traitor and betrayer and disloyal person, Benedict Arnold, Marshall Pétain, LeBron James, right? All of them have been compared to Judas because Judas is the most infamous traitor of all time. And so it's no surprise that I looked this up this week. Uh, the name Judas, according to babycenter.com, was the 6,539th most popular boy name last year. Judas... That name will forever be associated with what that disciple did. And you'll notice that Luke makes that point right up front, even in how he lists the disciples here. The other disciples, some of them, we know their brother. Some of them, we know their father. uh, Some of them were given a second name. Only for Judas are we told what he would do. He's Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Because that is what he will always be known for. Now, in case you're not familiar with the details of the rest of the story, let me just give you the notes versions here. Uh, three years as, as Jesus' disciple, right? Judas uh, serves as a disciple, as an apostle, as one of the twelve. Then one day he goes to the high priests. He asks them, well, what are you going to give me if I deliver Jesus to you? And the religious establishment uh, badly wanted to kill Jesus, Uh, Jesus and his teachings threatened their legalistic, self-righteous religion that was so dear to them. But they couldn't just publicly arrest him, especially during the Passover feast that was going on at the time, because they were afraid of the crowds. And so Judas agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and so it's one of the inner circle, right? He would have known where Jesus would be, even late at night. And so Judas leads the chief priests and the temple guards and the soldiers to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, right, knowing that he would be there. And then he identifies him by greeting him with a kiss. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And that arrest leads to a sham trial. Jesus is falsely convicted of blasphemy, and then he's handed over to the Romans to be crucified, and the name Judas Iscariot forever becomes etched in stone as the most infamous traitor in human history. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul gives the Corinthians several negative examples from Israel's history. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 10.6. Now these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. I think the same principle holds true for New Testament figures as well. They serve us as examples. And as much as we can learn from the positive examples of a Paul or a Peter, and of course our ultimate example of Jesus, there's also much that we can learn from the negative example of a Judas Iscariot. That we might not desire evil as he did. So what can we learn from the story of Judas. Let well, me make three observations from our text about Judas, and these are going to serve as the three points of our sermon. And then we're going to talk about specific ways in which the tragic figure of Judas serves us as a warning. So, three observations about Judas from this text. Number one, we see that Judas was one of the twelve. Point number one Judas was one of the twelve. Look at verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, and one of the twelve is Judas Iscariot. There's something interesting to note about Judas in Luke's gospel. This is the only time, before the betrayal that happens all the way at the end of the gospel in Luke chapter 22, this, chapter 6, is the only time that Judas' name comes up. Matthew and Mark do the same thing in their Gospels. And what that tells us, point number one, is that Judas was one of the twelve. At least outwardly. How Luke records the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. Judas was completely indistinguishable from the other disciples. And so Judas is not mentioned by name at all until chapter 22, but we have a lot of passages in Luke that talk about what the twelve did. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. He called the twelve together. And gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Chapter 9, verse 6. And they, referring to the twelve disciples, the twelve, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. That twelve, in all of those passages, that twelve includes Judas Iscariot because Judas was one of the 12. And so as as obvious and self-evident as all this may seem, just bear with me here, Judas did all of the things that the apostles did. He proclaimed the good news of the gospel that Jesus had come to save his people. He had power over demons and diseases. He performed exorcisms. He healed the sick. Those miracles that would verify the message that they were preaching, the signs of a true apostle that would authenticate that they indeed were sent out by Jesus. And so it's not like you've got 11 guys who are preaching the gospel and healing people and casting out demons, and then there's that 12th guy. He always calls in sick whenever we go out. His healings and his exorcisms just, they never seem to work. It's like in Sesame Street. Like one of these things is not like the other. No, Judas did the same kinds of things that the other 11 disciples did because Judas was one of the 12. When Jesus is talking to his disciples and Peter says, See, we, we have left everything and followed you, he's speaking on behalf of the 12. And that includes. Judas. Again, it's not like you've got 11 guys who gave up everything to follow Jesus, and there's Mr. 12, still running his business full-time, always going back home to see his family. One foot in, one foot out. You know that half-hearted Judas. No, Judas left his entire life behind also. And that's especially true if we're right about him coming from Kerioth in Judah, right, all the way in the south to commit to a ministry that mostly happened up north. You know when you're watching a TV show or a a movie and there's the villain and he just looks like the villain. There's this show that my kids love called Wild Kratz and there's this character, Zach Varmitek. Like, even if you've never seen the show before, within two seconds of turning it on, you know that Zach Varmatek is the bad guy. He always dresses in all black. He's got like these sinister looking eyes. Uh, and he, he's even got like this like, evil villain soul patch thing going on. Like, you just know he's bad. Like, he looks like the bad guy. He talks like the bad guy. And everything he does is like this devious plot. That's not Judas. As a matter of fact, for three years, you couldn't tell the difference between him and the other 11. And we have several proofs of that. First, we're told in the Gospel of John that amongst the disciples, Judas was in charge of the money, he was the treasurer. The treasurer in any organization is going to be someone who is trustworthy, who is reliable, who is above reproach. Who they pick, they're not picking the Zach Varmatex of the world. No, they pick reliable, trustworthy Judas. I mean, think about it. Amongst the 12 disciples, if you were just selecting a treasurer based on worldly skills, who would be the most obvious choice? It's Matthew, the tax collector. Like, that's what he did for a living. Or what about Nathanael? Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. You'd be a pretty good treasurer also. But it wasn't him either you get my point. Judas Iscariot was trusted by the other disciples. A second proof that you could not tell the difference between him and the other 11 is that when Jesus tells the disciples on the night that he's going to be betrayed, that one of them is going to betray him. They're not like, so obvious. Knew it all along, Judas. No, they had no idea. John 13, 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. They didn't ask, is it Judas, Lord? No, they asked, is it I, Lord? And then when Jesus reveals who was going to betray him, He dips the bread, and then he gives it to Judas, and then he says to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. Well, look at what it says, John 13, 28. Now, no one at the table, no one knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And these guys... They had spent every waking moment of the last three years with Judas, like if anybody's going to be on to him, it's these guys. But they're completely clueless. Judas was one of the twelve, and interestingly, Luke goes like out of his way to make that point in the narrative of the betrayal. Look at Luke twenty-two three. So this is the next time that Judas's name appears in the gospel. After verse, after chapter six, Luke 22:3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Now, later on in the same chapter, so we knew that we know that Luke is not telling us this because it's like new information and we have to learn it. Now he is repeating this. To make a point, same chapter, Luke twenty two forty seven. 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the 12. We know that, Luke, one of the 12 was leading them. Point number one, Judas was one of the 12. Now, Judas fit in really, really well. He fooled everybody. No, almost everybody. John 6, 64, Jesus knew. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. And then a few verses later, John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil?" He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knew, but to everyone else, point number one, Judas was just one of the twelve. Our second observation from this text, point number two, is that Judas became a traitor. Luke 6.16, Judas Iscariot, who became a a traitor, became, meaning that he was not, from the beginning, a traitor. Like, he didn't have this sinister plot to, uh, from the beginning, be like a mole within Jesus's most intimate group, like a a spy who was going to try to take down the organization from the inside. No, he became a traitor. And it's not just that he betrayed Jesus, right? Like, it's that he became a traitor, so it's not just what he did, it's who he was. The New Testament makes it very clear, it does not present Jesus uh, Judas rather as an otherwise sincere disciple who just impulsively just really made an unfortunate decision on that day. Now over time, in spite of how he appeared to the outside world as one of the twelve, over time his evil heart was drawn further and further away from Christ until... Luke 6.16, he became a traitor. So what happened? How did Judas become a traitor? Well, there's a few dots in the Gospels that I think we can connect. Uh, First, we know from the Gospels that Judas was a lover of money. You know the story when Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus, uh, she and her siblings are hosting Jesus for dinner, and she breaks open the perfume and she anoints Jesus with it. And apparently, it was like absurdly expensive perfume. But Judas gets really mad. John twelve verses four and following. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, "Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor?" He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was a thief. Remember, Jesus and his disciples, they didn't really have much. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But generous donors would provide for them out of their means, and that money was used for sustenance and ministry and all that. Well, it's that money that Judas stole. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Apparently, betraying the Son of God falls into that category of all kinds of evils induced by the love of money. selling the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. So we know for sure about his love for money, and perhaps that was mixed with just disappointment about the kind of king and messiah that Jesus actually was. Uh, Many Jews, and Judas would not have been alone in this, uh, many Jews expected Jesus to come and just overthrow the Roman occupation by power and establish his kingdom by force. So over time, they become disenchanted with him because instead of talking about conquest and might and power, well, he keeps talking about his sufferings and his death. They wanted a powerful ruler, and what they got was the suffering servant. So perhaps that, mixed with his greed, contributed to Judas becoming a traitor. Observation number two, Judas became a traitor. Our third observation, point number three, is that Jesus chose Judas. Look again at verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. He chose Judas Iscariot. Now that leaves us with a massive question. If Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, remember John 664. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. Well then why would Jesus choose Judas? If George Washington knew about Benedict Arnold, if Julius Caesar knew about Brutus' schemes, well, surely things would have gone differently, right? The treachery would have never happened. But Jesus, knowing that Judas would betray him, chose Judas. Why? Well, listen to Jesus' own words on the night that he was betrayed, this is what he said about his choosing of Judas in John 13. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a prophecy from Psalm 41 about his betrayal, that someone in his inner circle who proverbially eats his bread is going to lift his heel up against him. And that prophecy, that scripture, Jesus says, will be fulfilled. That's why Jesus chose Judas, knowing that he would betray him, right, to fulfill the scriptures, and even bigger picture than that, to fulfill the plans and purpose of God. But friends, this is crucial for us to understand. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot, it's not like this, Sad story of a helpless victim. Oh, poor, helpless Jesus, stabbed in the back by one of his closest disciples. Now, Quite the opposite. Right? The betrayal, and for that matter, all that followed it, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, all of it was exactly according to God's plan and prophecy. Jesus' plan and prophecy. The book of Acts and also written by Luke, is super clear on this idea. Acts one sixteen, right, talking specifically about Judas' betrayal. Acts one sixteen, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Jesus chose Judas, knowing full well that he would betray him, exactly according to scripture. How about Acts 2.23? Judas was the one who ultimately, through his betrayal, delivered Jesus. But whose plan was it anyway? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Here's the knockout punch. Acts four twenty seven. Now we're not just talking about Judas' role. We're talking about the whole thing. Everything that happened with regards to Jesus' death. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so yes, on one level, the story of Judas is a tragic story of betrayal. But much more than that, the story of Judas is a story of the sovereignty, the sovereign plan of God. How everything happened according to his plan and his purpose. And that's why, point number three, Jesus chose Judas. And before we move on, Let's take a moment to answer another question that inevitably follows that train of thought. If point number three, Jesus chose Judas, if Judas was predestined to fulfill prophecy in this way, well, is he still responsible for his actions? The short answer is yes. Luke 22, verse 22 For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, right? The betrayal, the arrest, all of that is happening to fulfill prophecy in accordance with the plan of God. As it has been determined, Jesus chose Judas, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Woe to Judas. It would have been better for him not to be born. And So yes, Judas is responsible and so, yes, Judas will be in hell for eternity. Once one of the 12 men closest to Jesus in his earthly life, well, now forever resigned to the depths of hell, as far removed from the glories of heaven as one could be. But we also need to be careful here, lest we misunderstand Judas' responsibility. Because Judas was not. Like a good man who desired to do good and was forced to go against his good nature like God made him sin against his will. No, Judas was an evil man with an evil nature. He became a traitor. And God gave him over to his sin, right? God removed his restraining hand of grace from Judas so that Judas would do exactly what Judas wanted to do, which is to sell Jesus For 30 pieces of silver. And so Judas is 100% responsible for all of his actions. But is that fair? Well, since God is in control over all things and he's ordained all things that have come to pass, is that fair? Well, that's exactly the question that Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? unlike Judas. God chooses Pharaoh, God raises Pharaoh up so that Pharaoh might oppose God and his plans, so that God might display his power. And Pharaoh is not unlike Judas in that he was also an evil man who desired to do that evil, and God gave him over to his sin. And so God's sovereignty in no way takes away from Pharaoh's responsibility for his own sin. And the same is true of Judas Iscariot. Romans 9:18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Just like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, even as Pharaoh hardened his own heart, well similarly God hardened Judas's heart even as Judas hardened his own. And so Pharaoh and Judas are both responsible, even though God was completely sovereign over both the exodus and the crucifixion. Point number three, Jesus chose Judas. So with these three observations from this text in mind, Judas was one of the twelve, Judas became a traitor, And Jesus chose Judas. Let's go back to something we said at the outset, that the example of Judas, as he's presented to us in the scriptures, the example of Judas serves us as a gracious warning. Specifically, I think that his example warns us of three things that we might in our hearts be tempted to equate with salvation, but are in fact not salvation at all. First, listening to good teaching is not salvation. Warning number one, listening to good teaching is not salvation. There were only 11 other men on planet Earth who could have credibly claimed to have been around the things of God as much as Judas Iscariot was in those three years. I mean, he spent every waking moment with Jesus. He followed Jesus everywhere he went. He saw hundreds of miracles. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw Jesus feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. And yet none of that had any effect on Judas's heart. As a matter of fact, his heart only grew harder and harder, and he became a traitor. But it's not on any of those things that I want to focus right now. Because, well, none of us have followed Jesus while he walked on earth. None of us have witnessed any of Jesus' miracles. But, just like Judas in those three years, we have heard good teaching. And when I say good teaching, I'm not referring to like public speaking ability or, or charisma as much as I'm just referring to plain, sound, biblical truth. We've all heard biblical teaching, hopefully even this morning. Maybe you've heard lots and lots and lots of biblical teaching. So you say, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm walking closely with the Lord. I listen to good sermons all the time. Oh, so did Judas. Do you realize Three years of being with Jesus every single day. How many good sermons Judas would have heard? And when I say good sermons, right, that's an understatement. We're talking about the holy and pure and perfectly wise words that came out of Jesus' mouth, the very words on which every other good sermon is based. And don't limit it to what we have recorded in the scriptures, right? If everything Jesus had said was written, well, the world itself wouldn't be able to contain all those books, Judas heard so much more of Jesus' teaching than we could ever read. And yet, his heart was hardened. Judas became a traitor. I mean, just imagine the scenes in your mind. Jesus, his disciples, and Jesus is teaching about money. He's teaching that no one can serve two masters. You cannot love both God and money— And he's saying, take care, right? Be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Judas is sitting there. He's stealing from the money bag. Like, what is going through his mind? Is there even an ounce of conviction or guilt? Or is his heart just so hard that the words just bounce right off? Or Jesus is teaching on the dangers of hypocrisy, how performing outwardly, even while your heart is far from God, how that makes you like a whitewashed tomb, outwardly appearing beautiful but inside full of dead men's bones. Jesus reserves some of his, his strongest condemnations in his teachings for hypocrites, And Judas is sitting there, and it's like, Judas, are you listening? Is anything that he's saying getting through to you? Friends, this is a powerful reminder to us that unless God gives us ears to hear, unless God the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, a good sermon in and of itself is going to do nothing. It's just like the seed that falls on the bad soil that produces no fruit. Friends, Judas serves us as a warning that just sitting under good teaching, sermons and Bible studies and podcasts and all the like doesn't necessarily equal salvation. And as a matter of fact, the same sermons and Bible studies and podcasts that God uses to sanctify and soften the hearts of his people can also harden the hearts of the unsaved. Warning number one, listening to good teaching is not salvation. Warning number two, having a good reputation among God's people is not salvation. Remember, Judas wasn't just one of the twelve. Like, number 12 out of 12. uh, The mediocre, like half-hearted, nobody really likes him, disciple. No-brainer, he would have been the first to be cut. Now, Judas had a good reputation among the twelve. None of the other eleven suspected him. They even saw him fit to be their treasurer. And to any outsider, outside of the group of twelve, well, they're hearing the disciples preach and they're watching them do miracles. And so Judas, to them, to an outsider, was part of the exalted inner circle. But all that reputation... It was just a mask of hypocrisy. Even though he fooled everyone else, Jesus saw right through it. And so at the end of the day, it didn't count for an ounce in the judgment. Friends, I'm afraid that there might be some of us here, even this morning, where the thing that we're actually counting on for our salvation is our reputation amongst God's people. Whether it's thinking that our membership in a gospel-preaching church, I belong to God's people. Or maybe it's an office that we hold within said church. Maybe it's just our general reputation in the community. A good Christian man or woman. And that's ultimately what we're trusting in. Friend, that is sinking sand. And maybe there's no better illustration of that than Judas Iscariot, who in one sense is one of the twelve, but in a much more important, eternal sense, well, he's nothing like them. Warning number two having a good reputation among God's people is not salvation. Third warning doing great works for Jesus is not salvation. Matthew chapter 7, I think most of us are familiar with this passage. But I want you to think about it specifically in the context of Judas Iscariot. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? You did, Judas. You prophesied, and you cast out demons, and you did many mighty works in the name of Jesus. And in Judas's case, he was specifically commissioned by the Lord to do those mighty works. But what does Jesus have to say to one like Judas, for whom all of that was just a show? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Judas, I never knew you. You did great works for me, but I never knew you. Brothers and sisters, these three warnings should be sobering. Because here's the thing about each of these three warnings, right? Listening to good teaching, having a good reputation among God's people, doing great works for Jesus. Those are all wonderful things. Those are all good and godly things that the people of God should be pursuing wholeheartedly. And that's precisely why they're so dangerous. Because the pursuit of those things, it can come from a genuine desire to know God more, to love him, give me good teaching, let me be amongst God's people, let me serve him and glorify him through various ministries. But the pursuit of those things can also come as it was the case for Judas Iscariot while hiding behind a cloak of hypocrisy so that to all outside eyes all must be well meanwhile on the inside despite all these outward appearances you're completely spiritually dead. And Sometimes that difference will be really obvious to people. But sometimes, well, you can go three full years in the daily company of 11 other committed disciples, and you can pull the wool over all their eyes to the very end. So, if none of those things is salvation, we're like the Philippian jailer, right? Like, what must I do to be saved? Well, thankfully, that answer has not changed. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved. Uh, Listening to good teaching, that's not salvation. Having a good reputation among God's people, that's not salvation. Doing great works for Jesus, that's not salvation. Trusting Jesus, trusting Jesus alone, that is salvation. And so Judas did those three things, and he did them really well. But the one thing he never did was fully trust Christ for salvation. Fully trusting that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That he took upon himself all of the sins of his people that they might be forgiven. And in exchange, he gives them his perfect righteous record. Fully trusting that it's because of what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection. Because of what Jesus did alone that sinners like us can be saved. Fully renouncing any goodness in us, fully renouncing any works that we might think would contribute to that salvation. Fully renouncing the, the good teaching that we've heard and the good reputation that we have and the great works that we've done as being the basis of our salvation and trusting in Christ alone. Judas never did that. And so despite all of the other things that he did do, well, Jesus calls him the son of destruction. Here's the thing. Like, at the end of the day, if you're a clever hypocrite, you can get away with it. You can fool the person sitting next to you. You can fool your family. Children, you can fool your parents. And you can definitely fool me. Judas Iscariot, you can fool the other 11 disciples. You can fool the watching world. But there is one person who you cannot fool. There was one person who Judas could not fool. And it happens to be the one to whom each of us must give account. And so in that sense, it's the one, the only one, who ultimately matters, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all naked and exposed before him. So, friends, if today, if you feel your hypocrisy being unmasked, if you've been brought to the end of yourself, if you realize that you are trusting in something apart from Christ and Christ alone for salvation, friend, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Right? Today is the day you can repent, that you can throw off the hypocritical facade and truly find forgiveness in Christ and Christ alone. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word speaks to our hearts. and So Father, we pray that your word would do the work for which you have intended and we pray that your spirit would now continue to work this word in our hearts that we might, Lord, those of us who do not know you come to salvation and those of us who do, that we might live in the light as you are in the light. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.